fucking magnets. How do they work? Fucking magnets. How do they work? Fucking magnets. How do they work? Hey friends, welcome back to Zach and Brian Watch the Watchmen. I'm Brian, with me is Zach. Uh, we're talking about the second episode of Watchmen today. The episode is titled Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. That's a tough thing to say a lot of times. Um, which uh, is the name of the painting that we see in Judd's house after a discovery is made. But before we start, just want to say again, this is a spoiler podcast. If you have not watched the episode, please turn around, watch the episode, and then come back and uh, listen to us talk about it. So before we get into sort of the minutiae here, Zach, after the first episode, you had said that you weren't sure if the show was good, but you knew it wasn't bad. How are you feeling about the show now that you've seen two episodes? Now I almost feel pretty comfortable in saying that I think it's good. You also like it, right? There's a difference between it being uh, yeah. good and yes. you liking it. I very much like it, and I am more comfortable thinking it's good. Um, in fact, we'll get to it later. I only have like one minor nitpick with this episode, but it, it comes a little bit later. Okay, sure, yeah. Um so the episode begins with a weird flashback that at first seems a little bit out of place in the episode. Um, but we see a a woman, a German woman during World War One being drafted into typing up a sort of uh, like a piece of propaganda that will fall from the sky for German for sorry for American soldiers, specifically African American soldiers. Uh, basically saying, why are you fighting for America? They're terrible to you. Things are better in Germany. And we see that this is caught by uh, the man who we will soon know as Will, his father, while in World War II. And then we see Will himself pick or it World, up. World War One. So World War One. I'm sorry, World War One. Yes. Uh, it, I said easy, that, Yeah. I said, said it first. right first. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, and then and then we see Will with this as a child a couple of scenes later. Um, what did you think of this cold open for the show? So I thought it was really powerful and chilling, and I, I'm meant to check and see if this was based in real events, if if Germany actually used this tactic in World War One, and it, it kind of slipped my mind. Did you happen to? No, to I, check I, I, I meant to do the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, really interesting and uns unsettling, but also just kind of like one of those. Huh, makes you think moments and not in like a way that is particularly comfortable, no, you know, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> this show does a lot of that, actually. Uh, yeah. For a show that is ostensibly about the book Watchmen that had very little to do with race in it. This show is so much about race and spoiler alert for future episodes that does not go away. Um, so anyway, um, we we now get a couple of scenes of Angela and Will, as we find out this older gentleman's name is, uh, in the Milk and Hanoi Bakery. Um, she asks him repeatedly who he is, and he says, I'm the man who strung up your chief of police. And then he claims to possibly be Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> so good it was wonderful it was a that is one of my favorite scenes thus far you, you just you see how good both of these actors are um yeah and it's just it's and, very funny and his, his claims are absurd but also like not outside the realm of possibility you know the argument that he makes is again you're kind of like 
but is he telling the truth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but the sort of the biggest takeaway from this, aside from him saying that he has psychic powers, he might be Doctor Manhattan, that he's strung up the sheriff. I mean, the the chief. I keep saying sheriff, the chief of police, uh, and all that. The big takeaway here is that um, Angela takes the coffee mug he was drinking for purposes that we'll find out um, in a little while. We also get here the flashback to the White Knight, to Angela's experience on the White Knight of herself being shot and her and Cal nearly being killed by 7K members. And I thought that that sequence was pretty chilling. And Yeah, to say the least. Um... <laughs> yeah. Go for it. Talk about I, it. I, I, well, I was going to say I was just I was really surprised that they show us that scene so early in the show. You know, we had a, a brief reference to it in the first episode, and it kind of seemed like, um, you know, something that they would string out, maybe um, refer to it, you know, ominously, and and we, you, you know, would maybe see glimpses of it, or or maybe not, like if, if anything, towards the end of the season, but. Um, to show it this early and to kind of frame it in a way that highlighted highlights uh, Angela and Judd's relationship. Um, and then juxtaposing that with um, the police finding the body and, and Angela kind of like saying goodbye. Um, I, I thought it was a nice touch. Yeah. The, the, the show does a really good job of, doling out information and that was one of the things that i felt like people would get mad at with lost let's say where there'd be so many new questions asked but there was never any information given and mm -hmm. i feel like this show does a nicer job of balancing that where every episode there is a lot more information that is given but there's also a ton of new questions asked um right right i i have a question for you about the white knight as it's presented sure, and yeah. kind of your your take there is a like uh i i have like a degree of um i guess kind of bewilderment maybe at the circumstances here and i i wonder if this is something that will be addressed at some point in the show and it may be something that you have some insight on that you can't talk about um but I do find it odd that the Seventh Calvary, the you know sensibly white supremacist Ku Klux Klan stand-in, would go after the police officers. Well, it, first that has not been established. There, there has not been a lot of talk about that later in the series thus far. Okay, uh, so I okay. Can, so I can speculate wildly with you. Do you want to hear my my reasoning for it? Sure, go for it. So in this episode, we get a scene. It's a very small scene of um a young girl buying a bunch of newspapers and it continues the watchman tradition of uh of the newsstand being an important place right um mm -hmm. and we hear this the 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 worker there basically talking about how Redford is and his like I I forget what he calls them it, it's basically like a version like the the liberal nazis or something like that are taking away our rights and I think that there's this just this idea of that Redford and the liberal society is taking away the the rights of the of the average folks. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I could see there being uh, maybe just sort of a uh, 
what's what I'm looking for? Like a, a connection between there where it's just that these people are working for the bad guys. Right. Sure. Sure. And I think, I think that's a good read on it. I think the, the part that I find just a little bit, um, not even like perplexing, but just a little odd is that, you know, I talked about in the first episode, this show very much feels like a read on the current climate. Um, except in this one part where, um, I, I feel like the place that police falls is typically not on the side of victimhood sure. traditionally. Yes, that's yes. not always the case. That's definitely not always the case. And I don't want to speak just like, um, you know, broadly. Yeah. Um, just, just uh, our listeners already know this, but you don't know this yet. I just sent you the uncolored version of our podcast art in the Skype oh, chat. Nice. So, okay. uh, listeners, you have seen the wonderful Joe Hunter art for our podcast already. Zach's about to see the uncolored version for the first time, and it's amazing. Oh, this is, yeah, very good, very good. <laughs> um, anyway, sorry, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's definitely going. Uh, I feel like the the it, the relationship between the police and the population is incredibly different than what we're used to. Sure. Sure. Um, which is fine. Like I, I don't necessarily want this. I want this show to touch on these topics, but I don't want it to necessarily just kind of beat a, a dead Comanche horse and, <laughs> and not do anything like, you know, I guess I, I wanted to, not play it too safe but also like say something important so um i i just thought that that was an interesting kind of distinction between i guess kind of current public sentiment and and the way things kind of are in 2019 versus how things are in this watchman future watchman universe right right yeah no it, it's it's definitely a point well taken uh and something that i think is um is probably the biggest difference, aside from one other thing, which I guess now we can talk about it. I was going to save it for a little bit later, but since we're bringing it up, have you noticed that no one has a cell phone and there's been no mention of the internet? No, I actually haven't. Everyone has but a that's pager. That's a really interesting observation. Yeah, I have noticed the pagers. I, I kind of thought that that was maybe just, you know, clandestine police communication. Right, right. No, but um, no one has a smartphone. No one has a right. cell phone, and we've seen no one on, on a computer yet. That is a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I wonder if that is like what. So you know, as we're watching this, we're obviously coming up with theories and all of that. You know, as we're talking. Uh, but one of the things that I thought of was, huh, maybe this is because the um, maybe this is because when Doctor Manhattan was around there were so many sort of um technological advances that came so quickly that people stopped trying to advance stuff because it was just there was this sort of preordained advancement there you didn't mm -hmm. need to work as hard to come up with new things because dr manhattan was doing it all the time and so maybe there was a lack of uh sort of you know adva advancement and um focus on science and creation 
because of that. You know, yeah, lack of innovation. Maybe. Yeah, that's a perfect way to put but, it. Yes, but but there there are some ways where you know technology is clearly kind of ahead of where we are in some things. Right. Um, we see Tofer for building that thing. Yeah, that thing that, yeah. <laughs> that's so cool. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good point. And you know, the the thing, this idea that maybe you know, internet, uh, the internet and cell phones and things aren't uh, as they are now. Um, coupled with the masks, um, the emphasis on masks with the police force um, reminds me of the Private Eye, the Brian K. Vaughn, yes, yes. Marcos Martin comic. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if maybe um, Lindelof is drawing some inspiration there. Um, his former staff writer, Brian K. Vaughn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, you know, I don't know that, but you mentioning that, uh, it, it brought that to mind. Absolutely. Um Okay, so let's see what else we got here. Um, one of the things I found really interesting about this episode is we have we have clearly established Angela as our protagonist for this series, right? But we also see how easily and coldly she lies all the time. Like she she is not afraid to just straight up tell someone something that's not true, uh, whether yes. it's her fellow police officers or. The only person she seems truly honest with is Cal, her husband. Um, and I meant to mention this last time we talked about this. I love their relationship. I love how she is clearly the boss in the relationship, and he does not seem resentful of that at all. That he just accepts that like she's badass, and that's so, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah, their their dynamic is really fun and refreshing. It's kind of the bright spot in this show right now. I think. Yes. Um, but also the really the their entire family dynamic in general, which um, I figure eventually we'll probably get to a little bit more of that. You know, the revelation of who well, we can talk about it right now. Are. I guess you, you want know. to. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess that's coming out of the White Knight stuff. We find out that um, her their her three partner. kids, Topher, yeah. and uh, I don't know if we have the names of the other two. We probably we, do. We've heard them, but I don't remember them. Topher's the yeah. one that stands out. Sure, sure. So they were the children of Angela's uh, partner, police partner, mm -hmm. and uh, who, you know, both uh, him and his wife were killed in the White Knight. And so they took custody of the children um, who were still fairly young at the time, Topher older and old enough at least to hide himself and his sisters. Um, and so you get the impression that Topher still remembers their parents, but maybe the younger sisters don't. And you right. see the difference in how they interact with their adopted parents in this episode. And there was a really subtle thing that I noticed uh, on my second or third rewatch of this. Because I've seen these now. I watched them once myself for the press junket. I've watched two of them with uh, Borat Voice, my wife. And now I'm watching them again to write about them and podcast about them. Um but I noticed that the mug that Angela gives uh, Will is a world's greatest mother mug. And that's just an interesting commentary on her motherhood situation. You know, like that probably doesn't come from Topher because she probably is very clear. To, I mean, she mentions Topher's parents to Topher in a scene they share together, you know. So that seems like maybe, like you said, the, the girls don't remember their parents too much. And so they have no problem calling her mom. Right, exactly. You know. um, yeah, agreed. And I, I thought that that scene with Angela and Topher was so good. I think the actor who plays Topher is really talented for yes. a young, for such, you know, a younger actor. Um, 
and just kind of the 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 pathos and nuance in that scene I thought was really well handled. He he does a uh, a couple of things that are really great in that scene. First of all, you see he is clearly taken aback, and then he begins to rationalize it. He says, "Well, he was a police officer, he knew the risks," and then he said, "He's not my real uncle," and then he smashes the thing he's building, mm-hmm. and then he asks if he can go watch TV. Like, there's, there's, yes. there's such a wonderful yes. progression of of seeing a young a young mind deal with all of this. Yes, yes. And uh, he goes to watch something in particular on the television. Yes, he does. Um, American Hero not, Maybe story. not immediately, but <laughs> later on in the episode. Yeah. Um, I love how pulpy and cheesy American Hero Story is. So so this was my – this is the thing that I alluded to. Um, Your one nitpick? I, I, my one nitpick. And I, I think it might be intentional, so it might not even be fair to call it a nitpick um, because of how cheesy it is. But – I thought that the the person narrating um, the the TV show, kind of the stand-in for uh, Hooded Justice, was just so over the top, so like Rorschach esque. Um, well, l- let me tell you, American Hero Story pops up again later in the show. Uh, I figure I figured it it probably is a recurring thing, and it's just as cheesy. So I, I do yeah. think that's intentional. Okay, um, I I just I I thought that that, and especially just like the dialogue itself. You know, there's that one line that is in one of the trailers. You've you know like, you know who am I? Well, if I was if I was if I wasn't wearing a mask, I could tell you or something like yeah, you know yeah. something lame like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just tonally very weird and i think that's intentional but it just wasn't it wasn't my favorite part of the episode by a long shot there are two things in the, about that show that i want to talk about okay which is i want to talk about um have you seen once upon a time in hollywood no i still haven't seen it yet okay there is something that the hooded justice does that is extraordinarily reminiscent of, of a scene in once upon a time in hollywood but obviously they couldn't have known that when making the show, right? It was it's just sure. it's it's funny how there are two like when you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you'd be like, Oh, that's what Brian was talking about. So you'll definitely see it. The other thing is that I like that it shows everybody watching this show. Like the seventh K is watching it, they're watching it. It seems like this is like a cultural phenomenon. And I think that that sort of tracks with what with how people would treat vigilantes and superheroes if that was a thing. Especially mm-hmm. if that was a thing in the past. Like, this is essentially gun smoke of its era, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting, too. This is, there are a number of moments in the first two episodes of Watchmen where there are things that happen. And I think, oh, gee, why, why don't we actually have these things? Like, I think the thing in the first episode was the, um, the locks on the police officers' guns in their cars. And then right. in this episode, it was the, like very thorough and extreme um overview of the content in the episode um and on one hand i think that was a little tongue-in-cheek maybe um but also you know it it uh did kind of tie into kind of the the zeitgeist and the the sentiment of kind of you know warning content warnings and like you know making people aware of and being sensitive to um you know triggering 
concepts and things. So I, I thought that that was interesting. And that seems like the type of thing that if that happened today, there'd be a lot of people who were pretty, who would be pretty dismissive of that. And I think that in this world, this is the stuff that the people criticize Redford for. Right. Like, you know, so I, I think that's, again, a nice sort of, uh, a nice way of bridging our world and their world. Um, so there are a couple of other small things I want to get to before the two big things at the end of the episode. Um, the first thing is we also see, you know, we, we find out about Topher and his siblings and how they came to, to the, to be in Angela and Cal's uh, custody. But we also see, is it their uncle you think who comes by um... to try and see the kids? I think it's probably too old to be a grandfather. I mean, too young to be a grandfather, right? That's a good call. I think I had maybe initially thought grandfather, but uncle might be a better call. Um, but yeah, regardless, a a relative, we yes. can say. Some sort of relative comes. And clearly Cal and Angela don't want him involved with the family. And I wonder if there's... I mean, there are a lot of reasons why that could be, right? They're trying to get the kids into like a new, a new world or a, a new life, rather, and not remind them of all the old stuff as much, which I would understand. Or you know, I think that this show has set up that like white people are suspect. <laughs> and sure, and, yeah, and it, yeah, and I think he fits a stereotype for better or worse that yes. could like raise suspicions of okay, what are your affiliations with? Yes. 7th K, you know? Exactly, yeah. Um, and, and I think that, I mean, that's clearly intentional. I think that that could be a misdirect. Um, but I think you're meant to have those suspicions. Yes, agreed. Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about before getting to sort of the, the two big meaty parts of the episode is I find it really interesting the plain, the plain nature in which people speak about Dr. Manhattan. Like, yes. At one point, when when Angela is explaining to Cal what happened with Will, she says, like, and he said he's Dr. Manhattan, and Cal's like, but Dr. Manhattan's on the moon, uh, on Mars, and she's like, that's what I said. <laughs> like, just, just how there's, like, there's a very clear, just, like, line of, um, of just, like, it, it, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just very funny to me. Not funny. It's very interesting to me just how all of the mystery has been taken away from Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, when the fantastic becomes the mundane. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. All right, so there are two things I want to talk about, and I think they're the two things you're going to want to talk about, too. But let's start, while well, speaking of Dr. Manhattan, with the scene with Adrian Veidt in his castle. Oh, man. <laughs> Maybe, so, like, I did not expect this, um, but the Veidt, parts of these episodes are becoming like the showstoppers, you know, the, the scene stealers, yes. um, which I guess is like no surprise. Jeremy Irons is a very well-respected actor. Um, but I just love how weird and surreal these scenes are, especially this one. <laughs> yeah. So this scene begins with uh, him like riding up to his castle again, them singing for he's a jolly good fellow again. Same cake again. <laughs> and then he we see the first, uh, presumably the first production of The Watchmaker's Son. Well, see, I wonder if it has, has not because she he tells um, what uh, Crookshanks to really, uh, you know, 
to to uh, bring out the the waterworks, you know, to cry right. more at this, which makes me think that this is not the first but, time it's happened. Maybe it's not. And, and to be fair, the big reveal happens, and no one seems surprised. So right. So maybe it's not the first. That's a good call. Yeah. So anyway, so we see this play that is horribly acted by these two people. <laughs> And we see lots of people, like we see a violinist and people, they're all wearing these masks as sort of to, I guess, like, you know, to, to not stand out as part of this play. And, and, and it's, it's a very, very poorly written, um, like version of the events that led John Osterman to become, uh, to become Dr. Manhattan. And he gets locked in the whatever chamber <laughs> and then Vite pushes a fucking plunger and he bursts into flames <laughs> he just immolates him completely yeah yeah he does and and crookshanks does cry because why wouldn't you um <laughs> um but then and, but then <laughs> from the rafters comes a painted blue naked man um not 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 Tobias. No, not, to, not no. Tobias Funke. No. Uh wearing a uh wearing a, a, a like a fencing mask essentially painted to look like Dr. Manhattan's mask. Yes. And, you know, um Vite is very pleased with this production. He's very happy with it. Yes, the and, the the watchmaker son is a, is a success. Yes, it is. And then everyone takes their masks off to reveal what, Zach? They are all clones. Yes, they are all clones. There is a female and a male, and they're all just clones of those people. And it's it's bonkers. Yeah, definitely did not expect this. Um, this uh, is the show leaning into, you know, again, I guess kind of like very much the fantastical and, you know, the the technological aspect of this kind of post Dr. Manhattan world in a, in a way that I really didn't expect it to. This is the easily the most comic booky part of oh, yes. <laughs> the show so far. Yeah. Um, and then there's a, the, the way the scene ends is that basically Dr. Manhattan, I mean, Vite realizes that the burned up Mr. Phillips uh, is still clutching the pocket watch and you see Vite in this incredibly, like, I don't want to say inhumane, but just, like, with no concern, just breaks the fingers off of this burned corpse to take back his pocket watch. Yeah, yeah. And and he, you know, insinuates that, uh, you know, this is just the beginning. But I think maybe I'm misremembering. It might have been in the first episode, but doesn't he hear say uh, in this sequence, something along the lines of, you know, nothing ever ends. Yes. Or was that in the first episode? No, that's in this one. That's in this one. That is, that yeah. is, which, you know, again, is kind of just a tongue in tongue in cheek uh, reference to the fact that Watchmen is continuing despite all protestations. Right. Yeah. Um, I also just wanted to briefly mention, is that a tomato that he bites? Yeah, tomato tree. What in the world? <laughs> <laughs> Very strange. Very um, strange. So that that is certainly the most bonkers element of this episode. And uh, spoiler alert, it continues to be a bonkers aspect of the show in general. Uh, you ain't seen nothing yet, folks. I'm very I, excited. I hate to be that guy teasing stuff, but trust me, you're gonna. It's 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 just amazing. So. Um, 
The last thing we got to talk about is that Angela finds out that Will is her grandfather. Yeah, and the way that she does this is really interesting. She uses the the DNA from the coffee cup and exploits a a system set up for um, survivors and descendants of uh, survivors of the, the Tulsa massacre. Uh, Tulsa massacre. Um, which again is another one of those things that I was like, oh, why doesn't this exist? Why doesn't you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. So she exploits the system to find out that Will is her grandfather. And he's 106 years old, we find out, which is also a, a, a thing like it's it's said in a way that is both matter of fact and and she doesn't take it. She doesn't take it as crazily as I would take it if I met somebody so they were 106. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that's just Angela's just a steely character or if in this world, because of Dr. Manhattan, perhaps people had just lived longer. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see that being the case. I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that was, that's interesting. But then she, she basically decides that she's going to arrest him because he's just pissing her off. And so uh, and and this is also we should talk about this. This is sort of we see Angela as a police officer, but she's basically covering up this crime. Yes, you know? yeah. There was a there was a scene where she and Looking Glass were in the car, and he kind of moves the coffee cup out of the way and doesn't really ask about it, and she doesn't tell him. Um, and and it's a really interesting scene. One because he pulls his mask up in a very Rorschach esque way as he's yes. eating his uh, his almonds or whatever they were and then we we see him eat the same way watching american hero story later yes yes um again you know highlighting those rorschach ties yeah um we also see him be a dick to her when she says something about her children and he says your children and uh you know we just see him just piss her off essentially but but yeah so she's so she decides that she's gonna Gonna arrest him. She puts him into into her car, and as she's putting the um, wheelchair into the trunk, <laughs> some sort of flying machine comes by with a giant magnet, like you'd see in a junkyard, and just picks up her car. He said he had friends in high places, and he was telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was. Um, so absurd, like um. The closest thing in like Lindelof's, um, you know, kind of body of work that I thought of was the um, Trisha Tanaka is dead episode of Lost, where the the meteor comes down and and yes. kills this this uh, this reporter, uh, just kind of highlighting Hurley, uh, Hurley's bad luck. Yes, following using the numbers, but but just kind of the absurdity of the sequence sequence reminded me of that immediately. Well, you know, this was the sequence that that sort of really hooked me on the show. I mean, I, I liked the first two episodes up to this point. I did. I liked them more than I thought I would. They were interesting, but between the Doctor Manhattan's, I mean, Doctor Manhattan play, which happens, you know, just ten minutes or so before this, and then this sequence, it just kind of blows the doors off the world, and shows you that things are not as as straightforward as they appear, and and how. How interesting it is to me that of how I guess just how much we don't know about the world anymore, right? And that's yeah. really fun. 
it is fun and and somehow despite like the very weighty heavy subject matter this show is still fun because of moments like this um you know the stuff with vite um it tonally it is in a kind of much more uh enjoyable place at least in terms of like my interests and sensibilities and so um it's just really interesting how um you know, for listeners of the DC3 cast, you know, we're kind of in the midst of two Watchmen sequels right now, this and Doomsday Clock. And uh, while watching this episode, I kind of was wondering how this version of Watchmen, this version of a Watchmen sequel would be received in a in comic book form. And mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that we're getting it as a television show. Yes. Agreed. Um, um, I also just realized we, we forgot a major thing to talk about here. <laughs> Which is oh, we forgot that? to talk about Judd's Ku Klux Klan <gasps> robe that is hidden in his, yes. in his closet. Yeah, skeletons in his closet. Yes. Um, <laughs> I also love how literally Angela takes that. She actually says, "Like you said, skeletons in the closet." I looked. I went to his fucking closet. Like you know. <laughs> yes, yes. Which which will kind of plays it off as like why why would you go check in his closet? But again, like we know so little about him, he probably. We can't know that he didn't expect that she would go look in the closet and find that. He, right. he, there's so many unknowns. But yeah, yeah. So um, there was certainly like I think some maybe foreshadowing, a little a little bit of you know kind of ominous tones about Judd. You know, a little bit of uncertainty in the first episode, and that is uh, played up uh, greatly here. Yeah. Well, like you said, the the discovery of a of a clan robe very i think very very importantly not a 7th k mask yes yes um which i think points to a couple of things possibly that you know that that i also think that there's a lot and this is me somebody not from the south speaking about the south so you know um i'm throwing up a a warning here of i don't know what i'm talking about but I think that there's this sort of deeply held belief by people like me that there are people in the South who maybe don't agree with the specifics of their heritage, but are very quick to protect that heritage. Does that sound sure? Fair? Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. You know, um, and so I, I could see this being something that Judd had from a relative or from his youth. And while he might have reformed himself in some way, that this is this is just a a remnant of his personal history or his family history. Yeah, yeah, I I think that that could be the case. Um, you know, if you want to give like a charitable read to it, if you want, like if you were to be less charitable, I almost wonder if like going back to kind of the um, you know, the distinction I had at the beginning of the episode about the seventh K and their motives, you know, maybe this is highlighting a, a rift between the seventh K and more kind of like traditional clan based uh, hate groups, you know? Yeah. Um, If you want to take an even more, maybe uh, conspiratory path of this, maybe he's seventh K and that's why he survived the white knight. Maybe. Yeah. But that, that's so that, that is kind of a case. It's like, he could have seven, seventh k ties or or i guess kind of like what i'm alluding to is maybe um there's a different 
a difference in ideology here right between yes. between the can the clan and the and the seventh k yeah um so yeah it's a lot to unpack um we also met um Bob Benson of Mad Men fame. Oh uh, yes, I sent you the. It's <laughs> yes, you did. The, the not, not great, great Bob. Bob. <laughs> right uh, when I saw it, but he, he is um, Senator uh, Kane. I believe his name is Kane. Uh, Keen, I think Keen. And yeah. uh, he is. We see a headline that he's running for president. Right, um, right. Which I think wasn't the Keen Act something in Watchmen. That sounds very familiar. Um, yeah. So the Keen Act. Yeah. So the Keen Act was a uh, in Watchmen. Was a law passed in '77 that outlawed, outlawed costume, costume adventuring. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but I it seems like this was probably maybe his son, um, or maybe even grandson, or grandson even. Yeah. Um, grandson even. <laughs> but yeah, likely related to the Keen of the Keen Act. Yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's again, this episode did fill in some blanks. I think you know, the mystery, not mystery. That's the wrong word. Like. I did find it just noticeable that Angela's kids did not match her and Cal's race. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean they couldn't have adopted. It was just it was it was something that was obviously done deliberately. And so we have an answer to that. We know more about the White Knight now. We know more about Judd, although there's still a lot of unknown about Judd. We have a better idea of sort of Vite's world, but still there's no idea how those things happen. You know, it just we, we and we know a little bit more about Will, but we're given more Will questions too. So I think that this episode actually really does a nice job of filling in more of that world building that we praised for the first episode while still giving us a fair amount of new mysteries to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I would still say we have more questions and we have answers, but I think the answers that we have are good and important. Yes. Uh, any, any sort of closing thoughts on this episode? Um, no, other than I, you know, I like the direction of the show so far. Um, I think it is, in a good place and i i think that it um you know it is it's enjoyable in spite of and despite its ties to the original watchmen yes yes um i will say that the next episode which is titled she was killed by space junk takes a pretty serious tonal shift um, it doesn't. It doesn't throw away anything. It just it introduces kind of a different side of the world, and I cannot wait to talk about this episode with you, Zach. This, awesome. Of, of all of the episodes, this is the one that I want to most talk about. So you, yeah, you you mentioned it to me pretty soon after you'd seen it, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um. So all right. Anyway, uh, thank you for listening to this, folks. Where I, I I can't speak for Zach. I'm having a lot of fun talking about this show. I hope you are too, Zach. Oh, I am. I definitely am. Yeah, and it's going to get even more bonkers in the weeks to come. So thank you for checking it out. Go to multiversitycomics.com for all your comics needs. Uh, follow us on Twitter at WilkerFox, at Brian Needs a Nap. Um, and yeah, we'll be back next week with the, with the review of, uh, or rather a discussion of She Was Killed by Space Junk. And remember, who watches The Watchmen? Zach and Brian watch The Watchmen. Fucking Magnus, how do they work? Fucking Magnus, how do they work?